0: Welcome, everybody, to this episode of Beyond the Crucible. I'm Gary Schneeberger, the co-host of the podcast and the communications director for Crucible Leadership. And you have uh, clicked play, hopefully you've clicked subscribe, to a podcast that deals in Crucible experiences, those events in life that can be extraordinarily painful. You know them when you experience them, their failures, their setbacks. There are things that maybe happen to you, there are things that maybe you do some things that bring those things on yourself, but the, the organizing characteristic that they all have is that your life has changed after them. The trajectory of your life can be shifted because of them. And we talk about these experiences on Beyond the Crucible, not so that we can feel sorry for ourselves or wallow in them, but so that we can learn from them, so we can apply the lessons of them to live a life of significance, to point ourselves on a path to a life of significance. And the host of the show and the architect, the creator of Crucible Leadership, the man who authored this idea of going from crucible to a life of significance is here with me now, and it's Warwick Fairfax. Warwick, welcome.
1: Great to be here, Gary, and uh, very much looking forward to this.
0: Yes, this one is gonna be a special one, listeners, because, and I will admit, I have a flair for the dramatic, so, uh, and I'm also an old newspaper guy, so I love the idea of breaking news. I love being the first one to report news to you. So, we have some news that we're gonna break here on Beyond the Crucible today, about Warwick and about Crucible leadership that is uh, is extraordinarily exciting. It's uh, both good news for, the, for Crucible leadership and good news for Warwick. And uh, Warwick, with that buildup, with that setup, Tell the listeners just what the news is that we're breaking today.
1: Absolutely, Gary. Well, Crucible Leadership and I have a book publishing deal with Morgan James Publishing, which I am super excited about. It's been a long journey, but um, this is a huge milestone for me and for Crucible Leadership.
0: Yeah. I mean, let's stop here and make sure the listener heard that. There is a book now coming, authored by Warwick. About Crucible Leadership, and we'll talk here in detail about just what that book's going to contain. Because I'll I'll let you in on a secret: I've read the manuscript, and it's good stuff. And um, when that comes out next year, uh, you will, listener, really understand some aspects of both Warwick's story and Crucible Leadership that haven't quite been elucidated in the way that they'll be. elucidated in the book and I want to say one more thing before I turn it back over to Warren and we start talking about the book but he mentioned that the publisher that he signed with for this book is Morgan James publishing and I just want to read what their corporate motto is so that you have an idea of the kind of book this will be the kind of story this will tell the kind of hope I think this will engender for you who read it this is Morgan James's corporate promise their corporate slogan to educate encourage Inspire and entertain. And having read Warwick's book, I can tell you it does all four of those things. So, Warwick, how did this all begin? What made you decide to write a book in the first place?
1: Well, the funny thing, Gary, is for many years, writing a book about my story is the last thing that I wanted to do. I had no interest in writing a book. (laughs) Uh, So, you might ask, well, why is that? So, as listeners would know, you know, I grew up in a 150-year-old family business, started by my great-great-grandfather, John Fairfax. It grew to be this huge company with newspapers, TV stations, uh, newsprint mills, magazines. Uh, it had thousands of employees, and so it was, it was a lot of pressure, a lot of expectations on me. I prepared my whole life to go into it. I certainly seen by my parents as sort of the next. Generation. So I went to Oxford like my dad and some other relatives, worked on Wall Street, uh, got an MBA at Harvard Business School. And um, in kind of early uh, 87, my dad died. Uh, He was in his late 80s. There was turmoil within the company, some, I guess, a different vision. You know, the company wasn't being well-run, at least as far as I and my parents thought. So, he launched this $2.25 billion takeover. That is, <laughs>
0: listeners, as I like to say to Warwick, that is billion with a B.
1: Absolutely. That is billion with a B. I'm afraid so. And uh, so, you know, right from the beginning, things went wrong. Other family members sold out. There was the October 87 stock market crash. And within three years, the company went under. It, it, Australia suffered a big recession in uh, late 1990. And so my dream of restoring uh, the company, to the ideas of the founder, and have it being well run was uh, was ended. And so kind of the question some people would ask over the years, well, Warwick, why don't you write your story? The story of right. what at the time was one of the biggest takeovers in Australian corporate history, of an organization that had the Australian equivalent of the New York Times, Washington Post, Wall Street Journal, you know, iconic uh, names, iconic mastheads. And that was the last thing I wanted to do because it was so painful. I mean, mm. I am a person of faith, so I, in my naivety felt like maybe this was something that, you know, God wanted to resurrect in the image of the found. He was also a person of great faith, which was a bit naive at the time and simplistic, and it was just, uh, it caught friction with other family members. I didn't do it, at least consciously, against other family members, even though there was friction between some and my dad over the decades. But it was so painful that it's like, why would I want to write a book about something that was so painful? And the other thing is when you mostly write books, these sort of books, it's a tell-all book in which right. you're meant to diss and basically say, well, look at these other family members and look what they did to my dad and they're this and they're that and name names. And, you know, the last thing I want to do is cause more pain within my family and and books that are, say basically, I was right, they were wrong, you know, whining books, or as we say in Australia, whinging, which is almost worse <laughs> than whining. It's just typically boring, untrue, and self-serving. And so it's like it was, A, it was painful, and B, writing a tell-all book that caused more pain. I mean, that's just not what I'm about. So, I, you know, forget it. I wanted to move on with my life, not relive something that was so painful.
0: Right. and And that does sound, in one sense, like it would be an easy decision for you to make. I don't want to write this book because it's going to be painful and I'm not going to throw people under the bus and I'm not going to blame other people for things that I, uh, you know, some missteps that I took. But in one sense it had to have been not easy too because it's true that pretty much everybody in Australia wanted to hear your side of the story or at least wanted you to talk about your side of the story. This was big headline dominating news about the takeover. You did not do a lot of interviews in the press at that time. So, It's still safe to say today it was safe in the late 80s, early 90s. It's safe today. Your side of the story is not really known in Australia. Is that fair?
1: Absolutely. Yeah, it was not known. And it's funny, you know, growing up in a media business, you'd think I'd be a bit more open to talking to the media. But, (laughs) you know, even at the time during the takeover years, those three years, I gave no interviews, which, you know, in hindsight was obviously a very significant, if not colossal mistake. Not talking to the media you know whatever you may think of them is really the right strategy figure out how to handle it well and obviously yeah you've had a lot of experience in media right. you know not talking is they'll just write whatever they want to write so i remember there was a uh, equivalent of a uh, new york times sunday magazine and in, in uh, you know competitive newspaper and the headline in the sunday magazine uh, i guess it was saturday but that's was kind of when the uh, the big paper came out Uh, the headline was Warwick Fairfax, the man behind the mask. Right. And all these people would try and guess at who Warwick Fairfax was. Some people that they interviewed saying, Warwick's the most secretive, enigmatic person I've ever known. I don't know what he's thinking. Well was because I didn't really talk about it, you know? Right. So, yeah. So I just, I never really gave interviews. Um, I've given a couple in more recent years, but I really have not got into any level of detail about why did they take over what I was thinking. I've just been very, very, extremely careful, even when I've talked to the media.
0: Right. And that's a great setup, Warwick, for what this book, which is going to be called, we believe, Crucible Leadership, same as the brand, uh, same as your life practice is called. But this is a good point to sort of pivot on that, that question of, yeah, it's been more than 30 years. People have not heard your side of the story. You didn't want to write the book that people wanted you to write, yet you've now written a book and it's going to be published. What changed? What changed in your vision for what the book could be? And what was the impetus for that change from you, from that switch going from, I don't want to write a book to, hmm, maybe I'll write a
1: book. It's an interesting question. Really, the answer is, um, uh, in 2008, the pastor of the church we go to in Maryland, it's a you know, largest non-denominational church, and my pastor was giving a message on the life of David, and uh, he was uh, King Saul's right-hand man, a very successful commander, and as often happens, when you're super successful, your boss tends to get jealous. Well, right. back in those days, jealous meant, you know, he'd try and kill you, which typically doesn't happen in the corporate world, but uh, <laughs> when you're a king back, back in the day, you right. know, the rules were a bit different. And so he was running away, hiding in some cave, and feeling pretty sorry for himself. So my pastor wanted to give a message of a righteous man falsely persecuted. I said, well, that's not really me. I mean, I brought a lot of pain on myself, a lot of missteps, but fine, if you want me to give a seven, 10-minute you know, talk about my story and what I feel like I'd learned, because it's a church, you know, what I feel like God was teaching me, my will. And I'm not Mr. Public Speaker. I'm more of a shy, retiring person, my personality. But, you know, I guess I must have uh, given in a vulnerable, authentic, here's kind of the story and um, what I went through. And what was amazing to me is weeks, months after people would come up to me and say, you know what, Warwick, what you had to say really helped me. And I'm thinking, how could that help anybody? I mean, I don't know too many former media moguls in the congregation. You know, it's just a cross section of just regular folks, you know, from different jobs, different walks of life, different problems, different challenges, like just like, you know, any group of people have. But somehow, I guess by me sharing my story, which is failure on really quite an epic scale, larger than most most people will fail on, and just being authentic and vulnerable about, about it, somehow that resonated with people. And so that. That was the big shift because I thought if by writing about my story it can help people, now that's it's worth going through the pain. And it was painful writing about these episodes. That's pain worth going through. So that seven, ten minutes speech in church in two thousand eight, that was a significant shift in my thinking.
0: And it's to hear you explain that the way that you explained it right now, and I hope you hear this, listeners. We've had ten, fifteen guests who've been on this podcast, and they've said versions of the exact same thing that Warwick just said. If talking about my pain, if reliving my Crucible experience and how I kind of bounce back from that, if that can help somebody, then I'll do it. So the very same thing that has led guests of Beyond the Crucible to come into our little studio and have a chat, our virtual studio and have a chat with us, is the very thing that led you to realize, right, that this is something you want to set at the time when you started it, maybe typewriter to paper, but certainly uh, computer to, you know, to uh, whatever it is that it happens inside a computer to gigabytes, computer to gigabytes. It made you realize that, that you could type this story out and it would have an impact.
1: Absolutely. And so really <clears throat> that began a journey. And um, I mean, we're now 2020, that's 12 years. That's a long yeah. time. And, you know, I mean, it took a long time, I and mean, there were some reasons for that, but certainly one significant reason, and we'll get into this more in a bit, but the core of the book is really my story. And so when you're writing about some of the dumbest, stupidest decisions you've made and writing about them in exhaustive detail and explaining what you did and what you were thinking or what you were not thinking... And what you should have been thinking. Right. I mean I couldn't write for more than maybe a couple hours a day max, and then I needed a breather to recover from the experience and to get my equilibrium back before I went into the lines down again. So it was that was certainly one significant reason why it took so long, but I was committed to doing it because I felt like by talking about this it could help people.
0: Right. And so that's one part of the book. Unpack a little bit about, because one of the things that's fascinating to me about the book is that you've got, there's a little bit of personal memoir in it about your story as you've talked about. But there's far more than that in there as well. There's, there are other perspectives that you bring to the table. So explain to the listener what you try to bring to the book in terms of the content and then how you think that content will help with the subject of what this podcast is about, helping them move beyond their crucibles and become crucible leaders themselves.
1: You know, it's funny, and we'll get to this probably in a bit, but the whole concept of crucible leadership, it came out of the book. But I didn't, Mm -hmm. when I started writing it, I didn't have that notion. So often, you know, one lesson learned is when you have this vision, it may not be fully formed. But just take a few steps. I wrote a blog a while back now, something like, you know, vision in the fog or something of that effect. You might not have the subtle picture. But you have a sense that this is right. This is what you need to do. And the vision will become clearer and clearer as you keep going down the path. So at the time, you know, I've always loved leadership. I've been a student of leadership. I've loved history. I've read about history, uh, about, you know, great figures in impossible situations, whether it's Lincoln or Churchill doing amazing things. And so what I wanted to do is write my story, but I wanted to do it through the lens of leadership and lesson learned. Mm. And so it's really a series of parables, a series of stories, and it's organized around key leadership principles. So it, there's chapters on you know vision, shared vision, how you get a group of people on the same page, how you implement it, uh, character, Obviously, there's a chapter on crucibles, even a chapter on faith, by which obviously my faith in Christ is the most important thing in my life. But truly, really, I talk about faith in a general sense. What governing system of beliefs is the act of who you are as a person and a leader, whatever that might be? It could be a religion or some other uh, way of thought. And so I've got all these chapters on different leadership themes, but then in each chapter, I talk about my family uh, certainly a key part of my story. And typically it's like, this is what I did. Don't do what I did. Instead, right. do the opposite. Do something else. And so you, you see my story. It's all laid out there, but you'll see it through different lens. It's like watching a movie. And you you know by looking at different camera angles, the story appears a bit different. So I'm right. writing about my life. It's really that way. If I'm talking about my vision... Or what character traits are important to me, or how I tried to get people on the same page with my vision, which was obviously <laughs> largely unsuccessful because I was a bit clueless. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's one. Stra- what's one part of one strand? But then I talk about my dad, who you know greatly influenced me, and then the founder of uh, the media company, John Fairfax. It was as good a businessman, um, wonderful dad. Wonderful husband, elderly's church, person of great faith. I mean, an amazing person. You got the fa- Fairfax family strand,
0: right? And he was your great great grandfather. Exactly so right. Yeah. Exactly.
1: So 150 years ago, I was fifth generation, a long time ago. So you have got the Fairfax family strand. Then you have, you know, an historical strand. I've mentioned, I've loved history. You know, the way my dad and I communicated. In some ways, was was history. He, you know, uh, loved history, and we would talk about that. He'd tell me these amazing stories of great leaders faced with incredible possible situations. So you'll have um, that strand. You'll hear stories from uh, Lincoln, Churchill, Franklin Roosevelt, um,
0: Walt Disney. the world. exactly. My Walt, favorite parts of the world.
1: Walt Disney, um, uh, Gandhi some English heroes, because my dad and I loved English history, uh, Lord Horatio Nelson and Duke of Wellington, a collection of leaders, but all looking at it through a leadership lens. And right. typically historians write about history, which is appropriate, but I'm looking at it through, you know, what can we learn today as leaders, be it in a big organizational or small, from these great figures in testing time? So that's another strand. And the third strand is really the biblical inspirational strand, Mm-hmm. And so there you'll hear stories of uh, biblical figures such as David, Ruth, Samuel, Daniel, Joseph, as well as inspirational figures like Gandhi. And Jesus. I mean, and, you're
0: talking Jesus, about Jesus. Yep. and Jesus,
1: absolutely. And Jesus. leadership ability. Yeah, and yep. people, don't, people think about, like, you know, how can we lead with the character of Jesus? But Jesus has something to teach us about organizational uh, principles mm-hmm. and, um, how the faith was able to grow over the first few hundred years to a remarkable degree. What were some of those key leadership characteristics? So with the biblical inspirational strand, it doesn't really matter whether you believe in the Bible or not. These are historical figures, and um, what can we learn from them? So it's really, when I think of those three strands, you got the Fairfax family strand, the historical strand, the biblical inspirational strand, The book is largely a collection of stories and parables, because I often think the best way to learn is through stories. And that's really what this is, a collection of of stories all around leadership.
0: I'm going to steal. Here's the first preview of what's in the book, listener. I'm going to read a paragraph from the introduction to the book to sort of summarize what, you know, what Warwick just talked about, about what the book is and isn't. What it isn't is, as Warwick has intimated, it's not, here are the seven tips of all the things I did right that you should follow, and then you'll be perfect and successful like me. It's not that kind of book. It's not a seven tips book. It's a book of stories, as he said. And, but this is what he wrote, uh, this is what Warwick wrote in the introduction to the book. Crucible leadership isn't a one-size-fits-all formula, but an extremely personal journey. So don't expect a how-to manual, because that's not my approach. Instead, I leverage the learning power of story and insightful questions to help leaders transform past trials and hard-won insights into a new, exciting, enriching, and uncompromised present and future. That's pretty inspiring. That makes me want to go grab the book right now.
1: Yeah, I mean, to me, um, as I think about what's different about this book is – You know, a lot of people write, you know, 10 steps to losing weight in two weeks or the five ways to be, uh, you know, get into the C-suite and be CEO and, you know, here's a five-year plan. And, I mean, that's definitely an approach. But I often think life is not simple. I mean, it took me years to get over my Crucible experience, which you've talked about in other podcasts and blogs and what have you. And life is rarely linear, you know, three steps forward, maybe two steps back. And so, I think it's often better talking stories and principles, and then the reader, or you know, can apply them to their life. Okay, so how does that apply to me? And I might be every going at a different pace uh, than others. And so, the other thing that's really different is many leadership books talk about. I was a successful CEO. Learn from me. Or mm-hmm. I've interviewed the top 10 CEOs in the last 10 years. What can we learn from them? And right. that can be useful. Learning from people who've succeeded, that can be helpful. But this is more uh, looking at it from another perspective, which is I made some incredibly stupid mistakes. Okay, I was young, but they were stupid nonetheless. What can we learn from those stupid mistakes? As well as leaders from, from history and from my family and so Uh, Very few people write books about, you know, I was an idiot, you know, read this book and, you know, don't make the mistakes I did. That's just not a popular genre for maybe somewhat (laughs) obvious reasons. Who wants to write that book? I didn't. But the only reason I did, yeah, was because if it's going to help people and it's like, you know, maybe what helps me a bit is just my faith and my perspective is because I believe God loves me unconditionally, you know. I'm okay with telling people I was an idiot and made some colossally bad mistakes with significant consequences, both monetarily and my family. I mean, I'm certainly very comfortable now. I don't have as much money as I could have money. Isn't really that important to me, but still reliving all this and telling the world about how stupid you are. The fact that, you know, my faith is a definite help there, but still I'm human. It's, it's difficult, but and that's just a, not a normal genre. Look at me; I was stupid. Read my book. It's just people don't write right. those books.
0: Right. Again, having read the manuscript, I'll say you're a little self-deprecating when you say I was stupid. You made mistakes, as you've acknowledged on every episode of Beyond the Crucible. But you also learned some things. You also learned uh, and applied some things about transparency, about character, about you know helping others, living life on purpose, and living it, having that purpose be. Uh, motivated by helping other people and that's been who we have tried to bring in as guests for beyond the crucible because of your example so you're a little bit hard on yourself I think when you say when you <laughs> want to end your your description of your story as I was stupid follow me no it was I made a mistake I learned from those mistakes you learned when you gave that speech to your church that people were moved by that and I think you found that since we have started the podcast with people writing to you emailing you and saying wow what you're talking about really helped me. That's your hope for this book as well, right?
1: Absolutely. And th- I mean, that is a fair point. And that is well said. I mean, really, Crucible Leadership and uh, the podcast Beyond the Crucible, it really grew out of the book because as I realized, I grew up with about as much money and power as you could have. We were old money you know, getting all the exclusive clubs and all very, very re- well respected in the community and the country, but I realized money, power, status it doesn't make you happy, it's really significance, As we say in crucible leadership, living a life on purpose, dedicated to serving others, that's really the secret to happiness, and that's really what we advocate, espouse, and that's what the guests we've had on the podcast have really talked about. I mean, they've right. really found from their crucibles, which is typically very different than mine, but you know, still unbelievably painful, that what really helped bring them back in part was living a life of significance. And so that's the core theme of the podcast, the book, and everything we do at Crucible Leadership is living a life of significance.
0: One of the things, if you're listening to this podcast, an audio only listener, uh, you're not seeing Warwick as he's talking. I am because we're recording this for YouTube. And I just gotta tell you, Warwick, it's it's really fun for me to see the joy in your face as you talk about this experience. As you talk about this quest that you've been on in some sense for 12 years since you started writing the book, but even going back further, more than 30 years since the takeover bid. And I can see in the way that you talk about it that you're pleased, again, not because you're getting a book published so much, as you're getting a book published that you believe will help people with the same kinds of emotions that you went through when you had your crucible experience.
1: Absolutely, Gary. I mean, when I think about it, really, living a life of significance, that is one of the keys to coming back from a painful crucible experience, almost irrespective of what that is. Yes, there's some soul work, admitting, you know, failures, uh, you know, reconciliation, just, I mean, whatever the things are that you feel called to do. Maybe you were in the wrong position, like I was. You needed more of a Rupert Murdoch, take my prisoners, or at least some kind of hard-charging, decisive executive, I'm more effective, advised. It was a terrible fit. That's many lessons learned I talk about in the book. But probably the biggest one is, as I began to do things that were within my gifting, and uh, focus on serving others. You know, I was, have been over the years on two nonprofit boards, my church board, and previously been on my kids' uh, school board. And now with Crucible Leadership, I've done a lot of executive coaching with my blogs, writing, podcasts, all these things and different endeavors in which I'm endeavoring to help other people. As that's happened, healing has happened bit by bit. Mm-hmm. Layer by layer. Yeah, you, there's always a scar. You know, in your bad moments, you always remember it says, oh my gosh, why did I do that? But living a life significance, it's almost the, uh, I hate to use buzzwords, but like the secret sauce, the, mm. the magic potion, if you will. I mean, it's not, it doesn't solve everything. It doesn't happen overnight, but it's in terms of making significant strides to getting over a really painful, critical experience. Finding your life of significance is one of the key ways to moving forward and having a fulfilling, uh, even joyful life.
0: We just had, um, as we're recording this, we released a new episode of the podcast that's available to all of you listeners with Kathleen Merkel. And one of the things that stuck out that Kathleen said in our interview with her was that, you know, you can be 80 or 90 and it's not too late to live your life in the most contented way that you can. That's her way of saying to live a life of significance. It's never too late to begin that process of pointing your compass toward a life of significance and walking that out. And I think we've discovered that throughout what we've done so far, what we're going to continue to do on Beyond the Crucible. But that's that's the message of those stories that you talk about in your book, Beyond the Crucible. It's the story of your great-great-grandfather, John Fairfax. It's the story of your father, Sir Warwick Fairfax. It's your story. It's the story of those historical and religious and inspirational figures you talk about. It's never too late to turn what the world views as a failure, what maybe even you view as a failure, it's never too late to turn that around, learn the lessons, and point yourself towards significance.
1: And that is so true, because it's easy to say, well, you know, I've been thinking about writing a book since 2008. You know, I could have started earlier, but obviously I didn't because it was all too painful. And, you know, it's 30 years since the company went under, you know, it left family control. It still exists as an additive, but, you know, it's more than 30 years since they did the takeover. That's a long time, but yet this is a dream come true to get a publishing deal with a company as well respected and prestigious as Morgan James publishing. But yeah, it is never too late. Doesn't matter what age you are. You want to keep moving forward and living your life as significant to the best ability you can. So never say, oh, well, I've missed my time. It doesn't matter whether you're 20, 30, 40, 50, 80, 90. It's always easy to say, oh, it's too late, you know, Right. but it's never too late. You know, while we're here, you always have that opportunity to live your best life in line with what you feel is your purpose.
0: Well, that is, I mean, that's a very resonant point. And I think, as I like to say, there comes a time in every podcast when we have to land the plane. Maybe this time I'll say we have to temporarily shelve the book. Um, we'll, we'll be back, listener. We'll talk about this more often down the road. But before we go, Warwick, there's a question, I, and I haven't previewed this question with you. I just want to get your reaction to this question. I want to see, and I want to see your reaction to this question when I ask you. And that's this. You've had books written about you and the takeover of Fairfax Media. Now you're writing your own book. Now it's going to be published. You've written your own book. Now it's going to be published. Tell the listeners which one is more rewarding.
1: (laughs) I tell you which one is more fun. It is not fun, you know, uh, reading books about you. My least favorite book was written in the early 90s called The Man Who Couldn't Wait. And the idea was if I'd only waited, I would have inherited enough shares to be in control of the company. And one day, and obviously, because there's a grain of truth in that, that's particularly painful. But yeah, reality is who knows? But certainly, and my book isn't, look, so there, here's my story because I'm somewhat unsparing. But it's a lot more rewarding to write a book about your story than read other people's versions and this isn't it looks so there I told you so it's quite the reverse but right yeah it's it wasn't easy but yeah it's uh it's more fun to have a book at least you've you've had a chance to express things your way rather than read some other book that's um yeah has a different agenda put it that way
0: Right. And the time is right for this for you in the sense that you have, you have put some tread on your tires since that experience with the takeover and you've learned some things. And I think, I mean, is it fair to say that had you written, had this book been published even Five years ago, it, perhaps that was premature for what you understand now about how to bounce back from crucible experiences. Is that fair? That this is this is the time. This is the best time for this.
1: Yeah, I mean, as a person of faith, I always believe that things happen when they're meant to happen. I mean, you try your best to move things forward and and all that, but yeah, I think this is the time. And certainly, in the '90s, you know, I was too shell shocked. I mean, I couldn't have written a book even begun to write a book. I didn't really have enough perspective. 2008, by then, life had started turning around for me and um, I had more perspective. But yeah, I mean, now's the time. Certainly a couple of decades ago, uh, it wouldn't have been. I couldn't have written it. I would not have been at all ready to share my story. I mean, it was just, there were years in which it's like, gosh, if I write the story, what will people think? Well, I hurt people's feelings. What about this? What about that? I mean, it's almost half for me to remember all of the things I was so fearful of, um, right. even back in the 2000s, around the time I was thinking of writing the book. So, uh, yeah, now now is the time.
0: All right. At that, we will close the book for now. For sure, listener, we will continue to talk about this publishing journey that Warwick's on uh, now that he's got a contract for it. Now that there's a publisher that we're working with very closely, he's working with very closely, Morgan James uh, Publishing, this will be out next year. As soon as we know when that's gonna be, we'll keep you updated, we'll make sure you know. So until that time comes that we're together again on Crucible, on, uh, Beyond the Crucible to talk about Crucible Leadership. And the book is called, by the way, Crucible Leadership, Embrace Your Trials to Lead a Life of Significance. That's the working title right now. So we're still kind of early in the process, but we'll keep you updated as we go along things about the book. If you have any questions about the book, visit us at crucibleleadership.com. There's a contact form on there. You can email us and we'll pass those along to Warwick so that he can answer any questions you might have about the book and his experience or about Crucible Leadership. If you enjoyed what you've heard on this podcast, if you're excited about the book, And you're excited about further podcasts where we have guests or Warwick and I are just talking about aspects of crucible leadership. We do ask that you would uh, subscribe to the podcast so that you, one, that makes sure you never miss an episode. And two, that allows us to get this kind of hope and healing that Warwick was talking about in his own experience. The same thing that he talked about to his church all those years ago, 12 years ago now. It will allow us to get these podcasts into more hands and help more people move beyond their crucible. So until the next time that we're together, um, do remember that crucible leaderships are painful. We don't doubt that, we know that. Warwick has talked about his here today, but they do not have to be the end of your story. In fact, they can be, if you learn the lessons of them, you apply those lessons and you move forward with purpose. They can be the best part of your story, a new chapter, the best new chapter, because it leads at the end of the journey to a life of significance.